My name is Scott Challoner and this is the Leaders Council podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. Let us start today by casting our minds back to the October 2021 budget when concerning the education sector the government triumphantly announced that by 2024 school funding will have returned to 2010 levels. Now while ministers may have been particularly pleased with themselves at that announcement it suffices to say that the same sentiments have not necessarily been shared among education sector leaders. So joining us today to talk about this very issue are three head teachers: uh, Nigel Atwood of Belfield Junior School in Birmingham who of course sits on the leaders council. Uh, we also have Matthew Jessup from Crosswaite Primary School in Cumbria and Helena Marsh of Linton Village College in Cambridge. Um, all of you, welcome and a huge thank you as well for coming on to the show today. It's a real pleasure having you. Good to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Now, hello. I, yeah, hello, Helena as well. Now, uh, just starting with that uh, budget announcement, first of all, while sort of the hard numbers of government funding might suggest that there will be funding schools at record levels. If we sort of place this into the context of rising pupil numbers, rising inflation, and of course, rising utility bills for schools, and that impending national insurance increase, of course, coming from April, it's highly likely that we're going to see that extra £7.1 billion of additional funding from 2021 to 24 entirely absorbed before they even reach the pupils that need them on the ground. So the big issue that we're faced with essentially is that this additional funding isn't really going to be making any tangible difference at all, is it? No. Um, the, the problem we've got is that the amount of money spent on education has reduced while num- pupil numbers have actually increased. So per pupil, it's actually less. So a great example of this would be the 2019-20 funding for education was 104 billion, but in 2020-21 was 99 billion. So that's 5%, at least 5% less per pupil, but not allowing that's not even allowing for the extra children that came in. Mm. And you know the numbers of children from 2015 to 2020 was an extra 4%, 350,000 children, but the funding in those between 2010 and 21 was only 3% better. So the numbers just don't add up at all. What were some of your personal reactions to sort of that announcement, given sort of how pleased ministers were with the fact that we'd be reverting to 2010 levels? How did you respond yourselves? I mean, I, I was thoroughly, thoroughly annoyed by it. I think any government that can, in one breath, say they treat education as priority, and then in another breath, actually, claim it as some sort of victory that in a couple of years' time, something was back to 2010 levels is an absolute embarrassment. Um, this government does not prioritise education whatsoever and the funding cuts for the past 10, 11 years, 12 years um, are very clear evidence of that. Whatever PR spin they come out with, Nigel said it there, whatever the PR spin is, there's mm. a 5% drop year on year. Um, so extremely angry, extremely embarrassed and pretty gobsmacked that they can say it with a straight face. Um, they're, they're a disgrace as a government as far as education is concerned. And, and not, yeah. not long after they announced the extra 7.1 billion, which we kind of already knew about, that wasn't really new information, they've also told us about the 1.25% increase in national insurance contributions, mm. the extra pension contributions, etc. And they said that that will come out of existing school budgets. So basically, that 7.1 billion the large majority of it will disappear in pension 
and, and tax and everything else contributions because that it won't be going to the children and it won't be going to allowing us to increase staffing levels for the extra support and the mental health support uh, and, and everything else. And this is alongside the fact that children's services have been cut by 70% over the last mm. 11 years as well. So children just do not seem to be a priority. And the IFS, the Institute of Fiscal Studies, have said exactly that. They actually said after the budget spend review, this is not a set of priorities which look consistent with a long-term growth strategy or indeed levelling up. Um, and that's how it feels. There's no long-term plan for education. We're jumping from one Secretary of State to, to another Secretary of State with completely different ideas, apart from we all agree that actually schools are getting you know, a, a good amount of money. In fact, Nadine Tahari in, in the uh, TEF last week actually said that he feels education has a really strong settlement and I'm happy in terms of where we are with funding. I think there's somebody who's working education feels like that. There's a couple of things to add to that, is that nobody in education has the faintest clue about education. It's an absolute embarrassment listening to them. And when the TEF do that sugar puff piece about Nadine Zahari and how schools are funded properly, that, that's an absolute insult to education. He's got no clue what he's doing. He's got no understanding of the pressures in schools and the many associated pressures as well that you refer to. In fact, that every service associated with schools and mm. um, families has been absolutely decimated over the past 12 years. Um, it's disgraceful that he's allowed to come out of that and he's not challenged properly on it. Absolutely. And, now, uh, I agree. Know, yeah. The comment that was just made there, mm. um, it will quickly get absorbed. It's very easy to make bold statements with large amounts of money, but when you actually look at how that will shape its way across the nation, what that actually means per school, um, and you know, other counties will face different challenges, but the the deficit budget in Cambridgeshire in terms of the high needs block is significant. So, and that much of you know the additional extras will be topicalised away anyway before they even reach the schools in order to pay for support provision for our most vulnerable students. When I started as head here, we had access to locality support, including a school nurse, including access to family support workers, young people's workers. Um, years on, after the pandemic and all that's happened to our young people, none of those exist anymore. We're having to create more positions in our own schools to compensate for a lack of mental health provision and young people's support. And that's on ostensibly less money. So it just it's very misleading. It's very misleading yeah. and it's completely nonsensical because there's, there's 4 million families living in poverty now. The increase over the past 10 12 years has been off the chart. Schools are feeding families, not their job. And you get offered picking at them for doing so and actually seeing it as negative. Well, the, the issue that people should be seeing is that schools should not be in a position where they have to actually look at feeding the families that are associated with. Um, it's disgraceful. Well, this is completely backed up by the figures. So mm. in January 18, the national average, although some of our schools have a lot more than this, but the national average for free school meals was 13.6%. In January 21, it was 20.8% is the average, which is what they're still saying the average. Yet Children's Services 2020 has gone from 3.6 billion to 1.8 billion, meaning that early, all the early intervention has gone, but cut by 60%. Um, a thousand children's centres were closed, 750 youth centres were closed, parenting and family support was reduced by 40%. And yet at the same time, the lack for the increase to look after children in 2010 was 65,500, is now currently a smidgen under 81,000, which is 23 years. 23% up, but funding is 40% down. So everything to do with children, not just education, is, is feeding into this 
culture where children don't seem to be well thought enough of and, and the future of the country and their futures, that the funding is there. And our GDP spend on education is reducing year on year, mm. whereas other success, more successful countries are spending more and more on their, their, their education because children are our future. You know, it, it sounds like a song line, but it is very, very true. What, what bugs yeah. me, Nigel, in all this is the corruption as well alongside this. You've just got the Chancellor of the Exchequer just announced that he will, or HMRC will not chase up the 4.3 billion in fraudulent loans that were taken out. At the same time, the government is about to raise councils for 50 million improvement grants at the same time as announcing these so-called um, budget increases. So schools are going to see that hit because councils will have to take that from the top slice of schools' budgets in most authorities. Um, how the government can just say at one one time in the week that we actually we're not going to chase up this 4.3 billion, but at the same time we are going to take 50 million off the councils. Um, which will be used to benefit the children is beyond me. Um, it, it's, it's corruption. And something we should scrutinise, I suppose, as well, is that word levelling up that we've mentioned already as well, because given how sort of school block funding works, we've actually seen between the 2017 to 2018 and 2020 to 2021 academic years a 1.2% average real terms reduction in per pupil schools block funding for the most deprived 20% of schools. So that really goes against everything that levelling up is supposed to mean, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it, that, that does mean um, levelling up does not work. You can't just level up to make sure that every school has exactly the same amount. I was very fortunate to work in a school that was in quite an affluent area with 300 children, um, but you know, less than 10% were special needs, less than 1% were vulnerable. Um, you know, we made one social services referral in the seven years I was there. Compare that to the school I'm in now that has got almost 30% special needs over 30% vulnerable children and 59% pupil premium, which has risen by 4% in the last, sort of, during this academic year already, shows just where we are. Um, so those families are needing extra support. You know, we're the same as a lot of other schools, as Matt was saying. We've linked with the food bank, we're supplying food banks, we've got uh, a shoe company that supplies with school shoes to help families out. This is what we're doing on a day-to-day basis because families are in crisis. And if families are in crisis, that obviously has a, a negative effect on the children. So you're working with a pastoral team, you're working with different agencies that, that we're paying for to support these children so they're ready to learn, so they do reach their, their, their potential. But it's, you know, you're paddling very quickly every single day because you then still don't have the number of staffing that you would like. We don't have a TA per, per class. We have a, you know, we've got 78 to 10 classes. We cannot afford more than that. In fact, we're losing one this, this Easter on the temp contract and we can't renew that contract. We'll be down to six for, ten, for you know, 10 classes. So this, this is where we're at at the moment, just so we don't go into deficit. Alongside that, Scott, what never gets talked about is that in, in school, teachers, quite rightly, and fully deserve they go for pay scale every year. And when you're talking about a 1.2% reduction, whatever it is, you've got to balance that against at the same time the wages are costing more and more each year mm. on top of the national insurance rises and things. That's not funded. That comes out of school budget. It's addition, there's, there's so many pressures, um, and schools have been saying it for so many years now that it can't go any further. That we're at the breaking point. We're past the breaking point. I, I do midday supervisor duties every day. I've got the graphs in the summer. So 
start a fall down person, you know, we do the cleaning because the cleaners can't always come in. And we have it better than so many front, uh, stores in the country. Um, and, and it's wrong, it'll be, it'll be breaking point. And this is why people are leaving the profession in droves at the moment, because why would you put up with the idiocy of this government, the drastic underfunding of education, and, and Nigel says the future of the country, the complete ignoring of basic needs of these children. It's a disgrace that we have so many millions of children living in poverty in one of the richest economies in the world. Mm. Um, but within all that, with the current government, things are not going to get better. It's blatantly obvious. I want to sort of build on what you've both been saying there and ask for Helena's opinion on this. In a recent but small, I have to admit, sample of school leaders that was taken on Twitter, a little poll here, 67% of schools are saying that they are already within a deficit budget or will be within two to three years. That leaves only a third of schools saying that they can actually remain in budget as it stands by 2024 at the latest. That is a simply staggering statistic, isn't it? It's not at all, and it's not a surprise. The government, in the wisdom, appointed an education staff. He said, we need £15 billion. Schools to run and to catch up, as they call it. Nonsense term, but that's what they call it. To actually take place effectively. The government offered less than 10% of that. And of that 10%, some wasn't new money. But when you say things like that, it doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, it's very easy to use catchphrases like levelling up, but you've got to actually have the resources behind that to invest mm. in, in meaningful investment in schools. I think over the years, we've been involved um, in the Worthless campaign, and there has been some movement, but it's been incredibly slow, and any gains that have happened have been completely wiped out by additional costs that schools are having to cover, um, such as pay increases and, and contributions that have been mentioned already. I think what's also lost is the idea that it takes a certain amount of money to run a school full stop regardless of pupil-led funding on, mm. on keeping a building running and investing in the basics of the bills to, to make it happen. And I think so many schools have been salami slicing and trying to find savings over the year, but there's only so much of that you can do. You know, we've mm. had capital funding slashed significantly over the last 15 years and we've now got school buildings that are not fit for purpose in many cases and we don't have the resources to be able to invest properly. You know, all, all the leaders I'm sure will recognise having to fill in extensive forms to try and justify bids for things that there, there just isn't enough resource at the end of the day to to fund all schools sufficiently and that's the and what, issue. Mm. What we find out now is that if you're not in a area where you're MP is a Conservative member of Parliament and is prepared to vote as he's told to, and actually your chances of getting any funding for buildings are much reduced. And, and unfortunately, depending on how good your MP is, there's, there's MPs that obviously care about education. Mm. Um, unfortunately, we have an MP that came to visit our school. I was very honest about the issues we were having. At the time, we were having some issues with, with part of our roof that was going to cost us ten to £12,000 repair. He said he'd look into it and see what he could do to see if there's any funding to help us. I never heard of him again. Um, but then we also had this announcement back in June last year that they're, they're in 483 million to invest and boost, improve uh, school buildings, which sounds brilliant. Apart from they'd already decided to do the first 50, where they handpicked them themselves, mm. and it's only going to 1,199 schools in total. Okay, that's less than 10% of schools that's going to see any money over the last next 
five to ten years to improve their schools. Instead, what we get is six to seven thousand pounds for devolved capital a year. Mm. What can you do with that? You can. You know, it cost me fourteen thousand pounds to get on the skylight change. So you can't do anything with that kind of money. Um, Especially not with the fine print as well, if I just cut in, that's associated with devolved formula capital as well, because the government makes clear that DFC is to be spent on a school's most pressing priorities. And although the option is there to accumulate that funding for more than a year to sort of save up for sort of larger capital projects, I'm right in saying that there's a general requirement, isn't there, that that formula capital needs to be expended within three years of it being allocated or that starts being clawed back. So it's a case of funding not being up to scratch and then the fine print causing even more issues. Yeah. I would struggle to think of something positive that its government has announced that hasn't either got uh, too many loopholes to jump through that actually means it can be more trouble than it's worth um, or has catches in it that actually means you're losing out. But they have not announced one positive thing in the 11 years I've been a head teacher where I thought, oh, wow, that's good. Um, that doesn't have something that creates a huge amount of work and actually has restrictions or constraints on it that causes unnecessary uh, work and, and is not for the benefit of the children. I can't think of one thing at all. Uh, Helena, your thoughts, please. I just I would agree. There's a, there's a huge amount of bureaucracy, even if you think about monies that have been recently um, produced for recovery and for catch-up. The administrative burden in accounting and, and proving the expenditure really speaks from a place of not really trusting school leaders to direct funds where they're most needed. And by the time you have invested all of that time administratively, the net gain for children, you know, the shambles, I don't know if I'm the only secondary head on the call, but in trying to actually secure tutors to deliver one-to-one or small group tuition, the amount of man and woman hours that have been invested nationwide in trying to pursue uh, trained tutors that, that don't exist, it just feels like there's a lot of, I guess, in, individual organisations within education that seem to be on the front foot a lot of the time when it mm. comes to the new initiatives of hubs, this, and, you know, in, incentives that. But in real terms, by the time it's filtered through to actually benefit young people, it's been a lot of wastage. And that's quite frustrating as well, that you mm. have to jump through hoops um, in order to get meagre amounts of money. Links to that, Alan, is that it's the latest um, air filters, HEPA filters. We've purchased mm. our own HEPA filters. We did not bother applying to the government scheme because we had to prove that we had explored all possible adjustments to make it safe, including structural adjustments. How on earth they thought we could afford structural adjustments is utterly beyond me. Um, it's, it's farcical. It's designed to provide the minimum possible. Um, I, I hope you can. And I don't know which ones they're sending out because if they're sending out the ones that they emailed to everybody saying these are the ones you could buy, one of them was a Dyson. Um, and that Dyson, it was very difficult to get the um, specifications of what it could do. But in the end, uh, the company that we were told to buy them from did find information from the United States of America. And actually, they could only do a 45 square meter room in a lounge. It was a domestic year. So that was absolutely useless for a school mm. of a minimum of 55 square meters full of 32 adults and children. But it, it's Dyson. Well, I who could text <laughs> Boris Johnson and get his little problem sorted. And then all of a sudden, he's the priority for air filters that aren't fit for purpose. And he's the one that doesn't survive. Yeah, they were not fit for purpose in Explain any way. Explain that we... with any other word than corruption to me. 
I think mm. the other thing, um, and Helena hit on this absolutely, yeah. is the fact that educationists do not seem to be trusted. And this, I, I brought this up in a um, an article I wrote last March for Leaders Council, where the the two best European countries, according to all the different figures that they use, are Estonia and Finland. Finland's been up there for a very long time. Mm. And when you look at their education systems, we're not saying that we shouldn't be checked upon, and we're not, you no, know, should check, you know, there shouldn't be some accountability. Of course, there should be. It's a high stake. But what they have in that country is very clear. This is what you need to be producing. They don't do lots of high stake tests and they don't do high stakes accountability. They trust that the work is being done. And yes, they do little bits of inspections and check different things are going on. But in a very professional development way, like we do with our teachers. And strangely enough, they've got very happy staff and very strong educational systems because there's that communication, that very high talking to and understanding what's going on and trusting people who work very hard and gone through all the training and many years experience to do the job to the best of their ability. There's very, very, very few people in any walk of life like education or health or social care that are doing the job just for the sake of doing the job who are not doing it because they care and want the best for their children. There's very few. 99% of, of everybody I've ever met want the best for their children. Exactly right. And the disconnect between sort of ministers and school leaders, that does have an effect on staff well-being, doesn't it? As well as obviously what the pupils are getting out of it, because funding ultimately affects them. But when you're having to put so many sort of man and woman hours into sort of chasing these things down, I mean, it does eventually have an effect on your staff, doesn't it? And like I say, the working conditions, buildings are falling apart. They're not getting the funding required to for the, for the maintenance. It's it does eventually have an effect on well-being and that's going to be the next thing that we have to face up to. Absolutely. I mean, one part of staff feeling valued is making sure that they're enumerated to reflect the hard work that they do. But you're absolutely right. If you're working in a school where your working conditions are poor, perhaps your access to IT is not as good as it would be in industry, um, where you're having to cover for absent colleagues or roles that you can't recruit to because there isn't enough money, then that does impact on staff well-being and motivation and I think you know staff are changing you know attitudes to work and the vocation of teaching you know we know that young professionals coming through want different things from their career and we can't assume that they're just going to be wedded to the job regardless of how they're treated and looked after and I think the challenge we also have given that the vast proportion of any school's budget is on staffing is that many of the changes that schools are having to make in order to try and make budgets balanced ultimately come down to personnel decisions um, and there are some schools out there I know that are, are quite cynical in the way that they appoint knowing that it's it's cheaper to make appointments with less experienced staff and they're you know talked about in the educational press like sausage factories that just keep replenishing but there is an outcome from that and that does affect the profession and our, on our status and standing and how people feel you know you can't have the sort of Logan's run where you get to a certain age and mm. you're the UPS and nobody wants to touch you or you know you get stuck in your career because school leaders just don't have the funds to be able to justify helping you to progress professionally and that's not healthy it's not healthy for staff and it ultimately has an impact on the young people who they work with. Well similar to that Helen, there's been a huge increase in schools advertising posts and whatever the teacher going for it is, whether they're M6 or UPS3, they want the job and it's offered at M1, that's what they have to accept. That's just not ethical. 
not ethical, it's not good for morale, it's not good for the school, it's not good for the teacher, ultimately, it's not good for the children. And um, if the budget's not there, I'm not sure what the school's supposed to do. I don't agree with it at all. And at I think, the end of the day, yeah, on, it's, Nigel, it's yeah. just one thing, a fair deal, you know. People hear this and think that, pe- you know, people in education, senior leaders by ourselves are just whinging. We're not. We, we want to have a fair deal for our children where a pound is worth a pound today, not that a pound today should actually be one pound 34 because, no, a pound in 2010 is worth one pound 34 now with inflation and all other costs that are going up. And obviously that's increasing for schools as well. When, the, you know, the gas electric bills go up in April by 50%, that's going to affect us as well. And we spend many thousands, uh, as, you, as you both do, on, on that. So that's a worry for us. That's more money that's going to be going, taken away from the children because we've got to pay the bills. Um, we just want to have a fair deal. It, you know, and the, the, the star that they um, employed that, that left because he said they needed 15 billion, the IFS have said 16 billion would put us back on track to be where we should be according to where we should have come from in 2010. If we had that kind of money, we can employ the right staff, the right number of staff to work with the children. If they put the money into children's services, you know, put the five, four, five billion pound that children's services need, um, the high block needs. If they put the right amount of money in, in the long run, it would save them money because you wouldn't be dealing with all the issues that come out of the fact that the services are not there and the mental health issues the children have suffered in the last couple of years and off the, the scale. You know, off the scale. And the amount of issues, and I don't know if you're seeing this just as probably more than us, Eleanor, in secondary school, but the social media issues that are coming into school and affecting children's well-being, it, it, I've never seen anything like it than I have in the last five months. It, it's quite a shock for us in primary. But year five and six and now into year four, we're seeing it every week and we're dealing with the, the fallout from it every single week. I don't just want a fair deal, Nigel. I want honesty from the government and Department for Education. I'm sick of listening to ministers announcing new initiatives or new funding when they know damn well it's not as positive as they spin it to be. Mm. And I understand. Uh, um, they're gone bites, on, isn't it? And I guess it's mm. exactly short term turn backs. And quite often it'll be 100 million or 1 billion, which the public and the vast majority of people that vote sounds a huge number. But as you two know, 35,000 schools, whatever it is, once you break down that 100 million, it's peanuts. Yeah, absolutely. Just other things like during the pandemic, you know, you've got the World Economic Forum and Institute for Fiscal Studies saying that every pound invested in education technology um, will give your GDP £15 back in the future. It wasn't just a clear educational argument for providing every child with a device straight away, never mind sitting around for 18 months. There's a very clear economic benefit as well. So what idiot would not have gone ahead with that? It's about the infrastructure as well, though. Mm. You can't poorly fund schools for years who've really struggled to kind of equip computer rooms and invest in cabling and, and Wi-Fi, et cetera, and then just come in with a few tokenistic devices based on your percentage of pupil premium. You know, we need to make sure I, every um, member of staff has I've adequate... I've got a really interesting... We've we got some raw gigabit funding, so I've still got a gigabit connection, which because of the company we went with means we've got three 10 gigabit connection actually in the end, um, which was fantastic. And speaking to the DCSM, MS, and the DFE, um, they then contacted us and said, look, we don't want to just give you this good broadband provision, super hyper fast, 
we want to make sure you've got the correct infrastructure. And I said, well, actually, we, we've prioritised that for the past five years, so ours is quite good. He said, well, look, just tell us what you want. So we did. They came back to us and said, no, that's not high enough spec. We've signed these sole contracts with these companies for new wireless points that are 10 times more expensive than that, but we'll fund it. And they are funding it, and it's fantastic. Speaking to somebody at the DFE, I said, isn't that that's great? I said, how many schools are you doing? 500. I said, well, what about the other 35,000? He said, well, that would be up to the ministers, but currently mm-hmm. we don't think it's going to go ahead. <laughs> it's incredible, isn't it? But just, you know, you can't yeah, fantastic thing to be straightforward for all schools. It should be a given for all schools. When we talk about addressing that digital divide that's sort of been laid bare by the pandemic as well, it just shows even more so how things like this are necessary. But it seems to only be going to just a sprinkling of schools all over the country. It's not something that's been sort of wholesale rolled out nationwide. And that's what's ultimately no. lacking, isn't it? I, I always feel like the government and the Department of Education and all their schemes and initiatives and PR spin and rubbish talk about levelling up is more about divide and conquer than anything else. And I think the past two years have made the digital divide and um, the, the gaps where you need to level up greater. I don't think they've done nearly enough to even start to even them out at all. I think they've made the, the, the divide bigger. Mm. And I think when we talk well, about... It's the, pretty uh, expensive. Yeah. Go on, Helena. I was just going to say it's incredibly mm. expensive to do that. You can run a pilot and you can you know, do an initiative, but to actually properly fund all schools across England to make sure that happens is, is huge. We, mm. yep. it just feels like now, you know, there's a lot of reaction to things. It very, it's, it's not felt like in my time as a head teacher that there's actually joined up thinking at any, any point, which obviously if you're a school and somebody comes in to inspect you, you would get, you know, crucified for. It needs somebody to actually stop and come up with a proper 10-year plan for funding, for the system, for children's services, because it's not just education. We're picking up a lot from children's services. So I don't know a school now that isn't doing social work and feeding families or you know, pointing in the direction or going out and supporting them. There are all kinds of different things going on. You know, We're not just educators anymore. There's so much more going on in schools because the only people that you know, a lot of families have got to turn to for support is us because the other services are just not there, or they got put on a waiting list for six to 18 months. Um, and that, that's obviously increased in the last two years with everything that's happened. So, and we need you know, guaranteed funding so we can actually plan strategically, because mm, you yeah. can't invest and plan for the future if you're reliant every year on knowing. I mean, I, my school is quite rural, and our, our intake and our demographic can change quite a bit year on year. And that means that when the vast majority of your budget comes from pupil-led funding, it's quite inconsistent and, and you can't plan brilliantly when, when you don't know exactly what your plan will be and there needs to be mechanisms within the school funding system to make sure that there is an element of stability so you're not flip-flopping every year and, and trying to anticipate what your budget will look like and then how much is going to be top slice and what other pots of funding are going to be available to you. Mm. you I mean, look, we do about to set our three-year budget like everybody else unless you, mm. you know, you've got different financial years like the academies. We'll do the three-year budget. The second and third year are nonsense. We set it, I don't know what we know, but at no point in the past five years have we ever thought that the second and third year of our three-year budget that we must submit every year is going to be anything other than a token gesture because it'll change. And we don't know until normally sports day in July what kind of pay deals 
the government have announced anyway. So how mm. you can confidently set any sort of budget when your main expenditure of staff is up in the air and announced very last minute, it's really hard. Mm. And I yeah, did want to see... I wanted to talk about that national By the, by the time the unions well. have agreed mm. it with, with um, local authorities and everything else, it's October, November, then you staff are waiting for it and getting it back dating January, February, back to September. Mm. And, you know, then all of a sudden there's a big lump coming out of your budget that you didn't know what it was going to be before October. Because they might have discussed it in July, but they'd have to go to unions and it goes backwards and forwards, so it can change anyway. Mm. Um, especially for support staff. I think you could, you could tie all this up that schools are drastically underfunded. Schools and all the associated services for schools and families and communities and things have been slashed for 10 years, absolutely decimated. There is absolutely no trust as a profession. Um, there is no honesty to the profession from advanced from education. You, can, you mentioned Estonia, Finland, and look how well it works there. Um, you can look at other places like Singapore. Anybody who's in the equivalent of the Department of Education, they don't actually have an equivalent as such, must have worked in schools before they are in that department. They must have an understanding of the education system mm. in their country to actually work out how to run the education system in their country. And I think the most dispiriting thing to me is that I look at the current government and the current um, people in power, and you think actually nothing's going to change. And I did want to talk, yeah. In that, going yeah. back to that CES yeah. interview that, that the entire we did, uh, they actually, one thing they do note is that he, funding is an area he hasn't thought much about, and the only thing he's actually said is, it's a strong settlement. Mm. That's, not a, that's not a discussion, that's not understanding the issues that are happening in schools when we're trying to make sure, A, the education is the best it could be by providing, you know, the best and correct number of staff. It, you know, we've all got brilliant staff, whether we've got enough staff. Um, and thirdly, how we support families in every other essence of their lives because there's no other services there. But he, that, there just seems to be that complete lack of knowledge and understanding of that. And there's always that PR spin, isn't there, that I think Matt talked about. Um, and that is particularly prevalent even with the national funding formula that I wanted to just touch on briefly again, because as Helena mentioned, there are some incredible inconsistencies in real terms funding because of how school-led funding and pupil-led funding tie into each other. Now, the government hides behind the national funding formula because for this 2021 to 2022 academic year, it's committed to giving schools a pupil-led funding increase of at least 2% per pupil compared to plus 1.84% in the previous year, which is roughly in line with projected inflation, yes. But of course, that only covers the funding that changes with pupil numbers. And when school-led funding comes into play, you often see the real terms decrease in funding because they don't quite marry up together. And so, again, the fine print is coming back to bite. It doesn't matter what the funding formula is, if there's not enough funding. Mm. Very simple. And no matter what level of funding there is, there's always that little bit of fine print there that it's like, oh, well, you can have this amount of funding, but we're going to have to take this amount back off you. So, again, the, the, the balance just isn't there. There is that as well. And I, I had an email from Robin Bevan, who is a head teacher of high school, and he, he, he's got these tables where he's worked out his funding. So, you know, 11 to 16 year olds per pupil funding in 2012-13 was 4,958. Then it reduced year on year until 2018-19, where it started to increase again to 4,800. 2019-20 was the same. 
2021 last year was 5,000. That's only £42 more than eight years previously. Mm. And then, again, he's, he's matched his numbers with his 11, with his sixth form as well. So in real terms and taking into consideration inflation each year and everything else, he's finding his budget is 14.7% less in 2021 than it was in 1213. You know, and he's tracked that very, very carefully with what the, it should have gone up each year just in inflation. So yes, of course, the government keeps saying we're investing record amounts of money each year in education. But even if the numbers of children stayed still, if you just raise them by inflation to keep up with inflation, you would have record numbers every year. Mm. But if you're having, averaging 70,000, 80,000 new pupils every year and you increase by 0.1%, you still increase the funding in there. But actually, what they managed to do between 1920 and 2021 is actually reduce the amount of money they were spending by 5% per pupil ish. It's incredible when you I think, think what's that. What's interesting yeah. to say along that, Nigel, is yeah, that if you look at our government, uh, government cabinet, the vast majority are privately educated. I think there was a news article recently that looked at the funding for, for private schools and mainstream schools, and private schools are getting six to seven thousand pounds more per pupil than mainstream schools. So the difference that they're getting is more than the actual figure that mainstream schools are getting. Um, and if the people in power, the cabinet, the prime minister, um, assume that that is the case in all schools and the provision that they've gone through is how all schools are able to do, then that's why this appears so detached from reality. Helena, what do you think on that? Because we've talked about just how much of the UK GDP is spent on education. Um, it was 5.5% in 2016, and it's now down to 4.5% in 2020 to 21. So that's the fifth largest economy in the world. And we, we're the 88th country in the world in terms of how much we spend on education. So that just kind of shows the reality of the situation that we're in here. Yeah, and ultimately, you get what you pay for. And running the education system on goodwill is only going to last so long. And I think we're seeing that with the attrition rates and the profession, uh, the mental health and well-being statistics regarding teachers. And it, it just can't last forever. I mean, ultimately, we can't keep doing more with less, as has been described. You know, safeguarding remit schools has grown exponentially in recent years in terms of things that we've become ultimately responsible for and the levels of support and care that we're giving to our young people and as school leaders we really care about that and we're going to find ways and we're going to try and be as creative as possible to make sure that our provision meets need but we're not magicians um, and there's a limit to what's possible before the cracks not only in our buildings but when our staff appear and that's incredibly frustrating um, you can't be told that you're valued if the money isn't invested there and will reap the rewards or not of, of a policy that doesn't prioritise young people and their futures. I think one one perfect example I can give of that is my budget at the moment is currently running at about 78% on staffing. I have uh, incredibly loyal staff. Uh, we haven't had lost any staff in three years. We're very lucky. And that means we've got such consistent systems, edu- you know, curriculum-wise, behaviour-wise, all, all in every way. The problem with that is, with my numbers falling because we've had some bulge years, I know if nobody leaves that this time next year I will be asked to start looking at restructuring, which is code for somebody's going to have to lose their job. And that could be two or three or four people um, because they'll tell me that my, my teaching staff is too expensive or 
the, the number of teaching staff per pupils will be too high because of lots of these children leave staff here. But then if you, you know, if, if you want the best education, you want to keep the best teachers. So yes, you know, two or three could move on and we could get NQTs in and cost me 15 to 20,000 pounds a year less. But they've got to have training. They're going to cost you money to do, you know, go off and do different courses and everything else. And that's exactly as it should be. But it's that balancing act which you do. You know, I don't want my staff to leave because I'm very lucky to have the great staff that I've got, but they're also going to be cost too much money and somebody's going to make me restructure in the not too distant future because my worst case scenario for two years' time is I could be getting close to deficit and my numbers of teaching staff per pupils will be too high, so we have to let them go. How how do you do that? That that but if we'd have had the funding we should have the 34% extra that we should have compared to 2010 levels, my staffing structure would only be 70%. I'd be well under the limit. So that that's where we're going. Each year, I'm struggling more and more and more because it looks like I'm employing more and more staff. I'm not. It's the same staff. It's just the funding isn't there. So the percentages then start looking like it's higher. I think you put it very well, didn't you, Nigel, in a recent article that you wrote for us at the Leaders' Council that... It's the time is now not to revert school funding back to 2010 levels, but to go back to the future and actually bring it into the modern day, bring it into 2022 and actually create a funding plan that's viable. It's as simple as that. It's the only solution. I think that's absolutely right. I think, you know, education should be paid in 2022-2022 funding. Health should be paid 2022 funding. Uh, social care, children's services, all those kind of things, all those services that have been cut and cut that make such a difference to people's lives in every single way, they need to be refunded again. The right support needs to be there and there needs to be trust. But at the moment, health, you know, health is actually not too bad on a funding level when you compare it to some of the other services. But all those services are the biggest services that can support or hinder children's family lives and they're being cut to the bone and they continue to be cut to the bone to the point where we have a government that is bragging they're returning it to 2010 levels i don't understand how they think that is fair i don't understand how the mainstream media can't actually pick them up on that and destroy them for that claim it's an absolute embarrassment i think and ultimately it's going to cost in one way or another in the long term when you look at what's happening special educational needs with the lack of proper resourcing we're just ending up with more and more children needing to be bussed out of county for highly expensive specialist provision it's it's not it's not good use of limited resource anyway not investing from the outset if the if the right investment was in place then eventually it would cost less money because you are not picking up the pieces of thousands of educational health care plans accredited children who are not in school places because there's not enough special places. You wouldn't have all the mental health issues that are going to carry on throughout children's lives because it's not picked up early enough, which then means that they end up in, in the care system or the social care system or the health system or all three because they can't cope with life. The support needs to be early intervention. And, the, you know, the one thing I keep hearing about is how we support our families and our children is early intervention. The problem is there isn't early intervention now. And actually in the reports I was reading, you know, <clears throat> up to 60% cuts in, in different areas around the country for early intervention. But the amount of money they're putting into the, the interventions they're having to pick up afterwards 
is going up exponentially because you're not dealing with it at the, at the, at the beginning. The problems become exacerbated at the end and then you have to pay more money to, to either deal with the problem or continue having to deal with those problems. And that's not fair to the people or to the rest of the country because it's not dealing with the situation. So that simple equation of prevention over treatment, isn't it, that you mentioned there? That's yeah. we should be investing in early intervention. So when the money is there, I mean, it's about what we do with it as well. That's it's as simple as that, isn't it? Absolutely. Things need to change drastically. Yeah. Things need to improve drastically because, mm. as you said, it's good for the children, future of the country, future of the economy, and um, downbite and PR and spin. Um, our short-term cover-up for letting down millions of children year on year. And I, and I hear and see far too many top educators, whether they're leaders or, or teachers, who are just leaving the profession, profession because they've become so disillusioned with it or they're just knackered, <laughs> to be honest. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, yeah. eventually it catches up with you in the sense that people will just down tools and they won't be able to put up with it anymore. Like they, the working conditions are getting so bad that they just they just can't carry on because it's just not good for their health. Yeah, you know, leaders are spending all weekend worrying about COVID cases and who's not going to be in and how many children are going to be off and you know that's not good for their well-being. I, this last twelve months, I'm I'm pretty resilient kind of guy, but this last twelve months there are odd weekends where you're just that tired, you can't think straight, and you do look at yourself in the mirror and go why am I doing this? And you have to remind yourself you do this because you care about the children and you care about your community that you're working in. And 95% of people you meet, that's exactly why they keep going. Yeah, I just think we need to accept that there hasn't been sufficient funds. Rather than making it a political hot potato and point scorer, let's just look at it properly like grown-ups and recognise what needs to be spent to make sure that children are getting the right deal from a, a good quality state education. There's no way of dressing that up other than mm. to actually dig deep. Simple as that. Dip into your pockets, ministers. You know exactly what to do. Um, all three of you, it's been a real, real pleasure welcoming you onto the uh, the programme today. And thanks ever so much for taking the time to sort of bring these incredibly important issues to us because it is very much what we're passionate about here at the uh, the Leaders' Council. And all three of you as well, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on as well. And hopefully within time I like I say we're not holding our breath but we will see the situation improve right thank you for your time thank, thank you for the invite all right thank you both for coming on and supporting us no problem nice to talk with you take care you take, take care guys all right thanks Scott it was an immense pleasure welcoming our three head teachers, Nigel Atwood, Matthew Jessup and Helena Marsh onto the programme to discuss one of the key issues in the education sector of our time and let us see exactly what happens in the months and the years to come. If you are a school or education sector leader who may be affected by some of the issues that we've discussed today and may even want to come on to the programme to share your own experiences, then why don't you apply to be on the show via leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply because we would certainly love to hear from you as well. Until next time to all of our regular listeners, please do take care and goodbye.